electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. A melt-up or a cool-down? Investors are driving stocks and crypto to all-time highs, but bond yields keep going the other way. Our guest says there will be one big winner from the search for yield and higher taxes, and he'll reveal what it is. Plus payments, popcorn, and space. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on PayPal, AMC, and Virgin Galactic ahead of tonight's earnings. And survey says Elon Musk will sell 10% of shares after a Twitter poll voted for the move. We'll look at what else could be driving this move and what it will mean for the stock going forward. But before all of that, let's begin with today's markets. And Dominic Chu is here for that. A little bit of up and a little bit of down, Kelly. That's what we saw today. But we are still near record highs. Uh, maybe no surprise there. But as you can see, we've seen a little bit of the momentum come out of the marketplace intraday. At one point, we were higher across the board. We're now just higher across the board again. But at the highs of the session, the S&P 500 was up about 17 points, 17 handles, down about three points at the lows of the session. So you can see here, we're tilting towards the lows of the day so far right now, just barely positive for the overall time being. 46.97, the last trade for the S&P and the Nasdaq Composite, just a hair below 16,000. 15,997, the last trade there. One place that in particular is seeing even more momentum. Stop me if you've heard this before. The computer chip stocks are hot, and it's playing out again today. Advanced Micro, the best performing stock in the S&P 500 today by a wide margin, on news that it signed an agreement with Meta, the company formerly known as Facebook, to help provide chips for some of its data centers, also announcing some new products as well. That has Advanced Micro, huge surge there. You can see the white line over the course of the past couple of months here. The Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETF, as a result, also up on the day, hitting record highs. Both of these stocks get gold stars here because they both hit record highs in trading today. So we'll see if that momentum in some ways can cool off. It's been a very hot part of the market. It's giving some traders at least a little bit of caution about the overall sector right now. And then another part that's been hot as of late, cryptocurrencies. We did see a record high today for Ethereum. Ether tokens, coins are up about 4% right now, 47.86 the last trade there. Bitcoin almost just near a record high as well, just below 66,900 is the record. About 66,000 is where we see there. Coinbase Global on the exchange side up 6% right now. 7% gains for MicroStrategy, which owns Bitcoin on its balance sheet. So, again, some green in the marketplace right now. But, again, a lot of traders there wondering whether or not there's a cool-off coming due sometime soon. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Don, thank you very much. As he mentioned, stocks are higher today, but they're also on a five-week winning streak as risk appetites swell. Mike Santoli joins me now with a look at what history has to tell us about runs like this. Mike? Yeah, Kelly, first of all, they're relatively rare, not just five weeks up in a row, but the past four weeks up at least 1%. That's only happened, I guess, a half dozen times previously in the last 12 years. And all of the numbers you can crunch, talk about how statistically stretched the market is, up 10% in 32 trading days in the S&P 500. It comes down in a similar place, which is it would be typical for the market to flatten out or give back some of those gains. Or if it ground higher from here still, maybe those gains don't stay in the books for long, but it almost never 
ends this way in a major peak. In other words, when you're on one of these very persistent rallies, it tends to be in the midst of a, uh, of a bull run and not at the end. Now, we have some very hot momentum readings right now of the kind that we saw last, let's say, last July, last April, also an area where the market did flatten out. I would also say we have this blend in the market of leadership from the substantive and the silly. Substantive being cyclical stocks, transportation, some of the semis, uh, consumer-related, uh, and, and all the other things that are beneficiaries of a strong economy, and that's a good message that you kind of pulling from the market. The silly is, you know, these kind of aggressive momentum moves in, uh, in, in certain kind of cult names, I would argue, and some of the no-profit tech stocks have started to run again. So that's kind of bull market activity, but also has to put you on a little bit of an alert. And then the question is, how much of the standard expected fourth quarter rally fuel have we burned up already? It's unclear. You never know for sure. I would say the market laughed at these types of overbought readings in 2017 and just barreled higher to get to an even more overbought state in the early part of 2018 before you had a pretty tough year. Uh, so there's no real script right here, but the risk reward has come much more in balance, I think, uh, rather than a month ago where it looked like it was a pretty good buying opportunity. Statistically stretched. And like you said, we've experienced these even the end of last year, Mike. I remember watching Tesla and all the rest yeah. of it rise. And it's just often the behavior. Did we bring it forward? I guess we'll ask. Mike, thank you so much. Yeah. We appreciate it. Michael Santoli down at the NYSE. Now, semis are one of the sectors getting all the attention here and getting stretched with the majors like AMD and NVIDIA gaining again today. My next guest says the chip shortage and other supply chain snags could start improving soon as manufacturing in Asia is picking back up. Joining me is Mark Smith, Wells Fargo Advisor, Senior Vice President of Investments. Mark, it's great to see you again. So let's start with the semis. You see, I mean, is improvement there a bad thing in some ways? Has the squeeze been driven by the shortage? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Kelly. I think that the semis are, are looking really good because you have all the different semiconductor uh, companies from all over the world on the same page, and they're, and they're producing 24 hours a day. You've got even the U.S. with Intel uh, coming into the game in a major way, as we saw you know, earlier this year. So uh, we're, we're actually seeing that many of the companies who are requesting chips are getting them, um, and, that, and that's great for for uh, for the going into the Christmas season, when you see uh, November and December has historically been uh, truly amazing for the, the markets historically. Now you've got a trillion dollar package going into uh, infrastructure, which directly goes into middle class homes. You got to remember that most folks who are going to get that trillion dollars are folks who are blue collar workers who are going to go out there and be paving these roads, um, doing these bridges, and that's going to go directly into the economy. And so when you got the uh, the chips out there and they're getting into cars and TVs and all that. And we got a, a holiday season coming up. It could, it could make for a tremendous holiday season uh, this year, because remember last year we were all home and now we're going to make up for it uh, this year in 2021. Do you think though, when we look at the SMH, the leading ETF here, I believe going into the pandemic, it was around 140, which was already a pretty considerable rise in the previous few years. Now we're, I mean, I don't think we're quite at 300 yet, but it's starting to look close. In other words, we've kind of doubled in 18 months is that going to be permanently sustainable? I mean, look at NVIDIA. It is now one of the largest companies in the world. So maybe the answer is yes. But I guess if you're buying here, you would have to say there's not going to be a reset like there was with lumber, for instance. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. I think that this demand is going to continue. Uh, you really can't get away um, from any of these shipmakers. And um, no matter what you buy, whether it's a cell phone, a watch, or a thermometer for your, your turkey for Thanksgiving, you're going to have to use these 
uh, going forward. And so I think that there's still a lot more upsides, Kelly. You were over 300 as we're showing the chart there, 302 for the SMH, which is an incredible run. Let me ask you more broadly about the area you think could be a big beneficiary of the tax rises that we are likely to see into next year, um, but also the chase for yields, because one thing we haven't talked about yet is the fact that bond yields are sinking in this environment. So what do you think the big beneficiary here could be? The big beneficiary, I think, is going to be in the municipal bond sector. Uh, the reason for that is, is that folks, especially my clients, are asking me, Mark, how can I get tax-free income because taxes are only going up? And you're going to see them reset January one. So with all this money that is going out into the system from the feds, you've got to um, have taxes go up. And so my clients are asking me where that where the opportunity is to get tax free income. It's in the municipal bond sector. And you're going to see with this infrastructure deal that just came out, you're going to have states all over the country partnering with the federal government. You're going to give me a dollar. Let's match you a dollar. That's going to be great for municipal bondholders because you're going to see more inventory. And I think there's going to be a huge appetite in 2022. I don't know if people are asking you this day to day, but what do you tell them when they say, well, why is the 10 year still at one and a half percent? Well, you know, the Fed is is making sure that it stays that way for sure. Right. Um, And so that is, I think, great policy because it's going to continue this growth momentum we're seeing in the markets. We're talking about five weeks upward momentum. The Fed is making sure that that keeps happening. You're going to keep um, having really low interest rate environments for the foreseeable future until unemployment is reached its maximum potential, according to you know Chairman Powell. And it looks like he's probably going to stay in office. So we're going to see a lot more of the same. And I would just say that you know if you're not in this market right now, uh, you might be missing out for this last fourth quarter because it could be one of the best fourth quarters we've seen in a while. So that was going to be my last question, based on what we were cha- talking to Mike Santoli with a moment ago about. Based on what we were talking about with Mike Santoli, she said, do you think that this run up into year end has been pulled forward or not? I don't think so, because you're starting to see the rest of the world come online. The U.S. has done a great job with uh, giving out vaccines and getting um, all these different antivirals out there. The rest of the world is now just coming back on. You're seeing places literally just open up in the last 30 days. So. I think there's a lot more room to run because that's going to help the U.S. economy as well. When you're seeing the rest of the world come online, you're seeing from even, you know, Airbnb, their numbers were um, were great. And they're saying Latin America's picking up. You're going to see Europe pick up and Asia. So I think that there's a tremendous amount of upside because the U.S. has gotten us to this point, And now we're bringing on the rest of the world and, and with this reopening trade. I stay in, stay in this market. Great way to put it. Mark, always good to check in with you. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Kelly. Mark Smith with Wells Fargo Advisors. Just got a pretty interesting three-year bond auction. Let's get out to Rick Santelli at the CME. What's going on there, Rick? You know, Kelly, it's the first of $120 billion in supply from the Treasury, and it's three-year notes, $56 billion of them. And the price, the yield, was 0.75, three-quarters of 1%. It didn't price well, meaning the when-issued market was a little bit lower in yield, so higher yield is the lower price, but... What we did see is two categories that really excelled. Indirect bidders, which you always question because foreign buyers are very important right now considering how many negative yielding securities there are. That component was at 57.6%, the highest since November of 17. But get this, the dealers always get what's left over. So after the buffet table's gone over by investors and they do what they want to do, they purchase with their, uh, with, what fits their needs, what's left goes to the primary dealers. 
That amount was the smallest amount going back all the way to November of 2009 at 24.3%. And that's the interesting part of this auction. So we should pay attention because the short maturities were the beneficiary of a lot of selling that flattened the yield curve. Then our Fed, of course, concentrated on the taper. Bank of England didn't raise rates. Now they may have used this auction to buy back some of those shorts. Very interesting. Uh, some big superlatives for what's usually kind of a boring three-year auction, if the three-year will forgive me for saying that. Uh, Rick, thank you so much. It's good to see you today. No, we appreciate absolutely. it. Rick Santelli out of the CME. Coming up, heavy on stock, light on cash. Elon Musk asks the Twitterverse if he should sell 10% of his Tesla shares. They said yes, and sending the stock lower today. But where does it go from here? And was there a different driving force behind his move? Plus, cashless cinemas and the cosmos. We've got the story and the trades ahead of three key earnings tonight from Pay PayPal, AMC, and Virgin Galactic. Can AMC deliver for the apes? And will Virgin Galactic lift off again after being grounded? Stay with us. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Elon Musk letting the people decide what he does with some of his Tesla stock, running a Twitter poll asking whether he should sell 10 percent of his stake. The people voted yes, which is probably what Musk had been hoping for in the first place. Joining me now to explain is Robert Frank. Robert? Well, Kelly, you might say that Elon Musk knew what the outcome of this poll was going to be, because regardless of the results, he was going to have to start selling millions of shares. And the reason is a giant tax bill. In 2012, he received a compensation package that granted him options on 23 million shares. The options expire next August, so he has to use them or lose them in the next nine months. Now, when he exercises those options, he also has to pay a tax. Now, the taxable gain on those options and shares is over $28 billion based on today's share price. Now, the combined federal and California tax bill on that gain could be up to $15 billion. Now, he can't borrow that much to pay the IRS. He already has 92 million shares pledged as collateral against personal loans, and lenders wouldn't likely take a risk that large, especially on a volatile stock. So he has to sell shares as part of the options exercise. Now, if he sells 10% of his holdings, as he's promised, he raises about $20 billion in cash. That's enough to pay the IRS and to give a little to charity, which, by the way, would also help offset and lower that tax bill. $15 billion might end up being the largest tax bill ever paid in the U.S., but he's still going to come out way ahead. He will gain about 10 million shares in the company even after the sale and the transaction. 
and he's currently worth about $340 billion, a number that will go even higher after the options and the share sale. So, Kelly, government gets $10 billion, California gets four or five, Elon gets more shares and more paper wealth. Everyone so wins. If, if I'm understanding right now, he owns roughly about 20% of Tesla. What will that proportion look like into next year? Well, if he exercises these options, he basically gets another. It depends on how much he sells and what the share price is and how much he has to sell. But he will end up probably with another two or three percent with hmm. those additional 10 million shares. So he'll be at 22, 23 percent. And then remember, this was the first compensation package. He got another one in 2018. That's even more options than these. And he'll have to pay those taxes in 2028. So we'll be doing this story again in about seven years. Yeah, I think it'll help the CBO when they're scoring uh, the bills. Robert, thank you very much. (laughs) That's right. We appreciate it today, Robert Frank. My next guest says, while this was a kind of bizarre soap opera, dips are buying opportunities in Tesla and Musk's sale is digestible. Uh, He also just raised his bull case price target to $1,800 a share. Joining me now is Dan Ives, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush. Dan, welcome. Um, So actually, Robert just answered one of the questions I was going to have, which is, was there a risk of Elon Musk controlling less of this company in the future? It sounds like he could actually end up controlling more of it. Yeah, I mean, he's still going to own anywhere from 23 to 25% of Tesla. And I think going into this, I mean, investors thought that he would sell potentially 5, 6% of his ownership just given the tax bill come and due. 10% and of course the uh, bizarro soap opera poll over the weekend, that's just another chapter for Musk, but I think at the end of the day it continues to be a containable amount. I still view it as a blip of the radar. You know, he had even more bizarre tweets that many would say raise the risk of regulatory crackdown at a time when full self-driving cars are out there on the streets for, you know, regulators to crack down any time if they want to. But this is also his advertising genius, isn't it? He talks all the time about how he can literally sell the cars for less because Tesla doesn't have to advertise. Yeah, this is a company that doesn't formally advertise. And, you know, part of the cachet is Musk. And that's how Tesla's built the brand globally. And what you're seeing now in terms of the stock, it's just more and more that adoption. I think Hertz, Uber, as well as just the margin story from 3Q, those are the two linchpins that obviously crossed the trillion dollar mark. But but we don't think it stops here. I mean, I believe in part of this five trillion dollar green tidal wave, Tesla still in that early innings of playing out. So that's why I think more and more investors continue to have a strong appetite for Tesla shares like you're seeing today, despite you know, the bears yelling fire into a crowd theater. They're down less than 3% at this point. Do you, so what is the multiple in the earnings power now that you see it under $800? Or at some point, is that just not relevant because this stock is sort of deciding its number for you? I mean, the $1,500 price target itself was the bull case just a couple of weeks ago, predicated on some pretty strong earnings per share and a pretty high multiple as it is. So how do you get to 1800 well, I think a lot of it, you got to look at some of the parts. And I think when you look at these transformational growth stories, the Amazons, Netflix, and of course, Tesla, you know, looking near term at earnings, I think you don't see forests with the trees. I, I view some of the parts. I think China alone is worth three, potentially $400 to the story. And then you look at what's going to be a $5 trillion market that they own 80% of. You know, this is a company that into the next few years, I think EV could go from 3% of automotive to potentially 10% in the next two to three years, that could be $25, $30 of earnings power for Tesla. That's why I believe this is really a name. We saw a tipping point 
the last few weeks. You see it in the stock, but but I don't think this is really a pull forward. I think this is just starting. I think the next phase of the Tesla bull thesis. So finally and quickly, is there anything that Musk could do with the shares or sort of with Tesla that would alarm you from you know the standpoint of reaching those objectives that you just described? Well, I think right here, it just needs to be containable sale. I mean, everyone knew about the August uh, expiration. So 10%, that's containable. If it starts to be more of a cascade and more selling, that could really create more of a negative. But for right now, we continue. This is a name that, that has significant upside into the next few years as part of what we're seeing in EV. And I think Tesla continues right now, at least in EV land, it's Tesla's world. Everyone else is paying rent. <laughs> it's just shy of $1.2 trillion as we're uh, here chatting. Dan, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Dan Ives on Tesla. Still ahead, the CEOs of Pepsi and Unilever talk about how climate change is disrupting the supply of things consumers need and the plans they have to fix that. Plus, time for a slowdown. The timeshare business soared when the pandemic took over, and so did the stocks. Can that continue as the pandemic recedes? We'll ask the CEO of Marriott Vacations as profit jumps and sales triple. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. The second week of the COP26 Climate Summit is now underway, and it's the corporations talking about how they have to adapt their workforce and supply chains in the face of global warming. Diana Olick is in Glasgow with a look at how Pepsi and Unilever are pivoting. Diana? Kelly, it's one thing to talk about reducing emissions to slow global warming, but warming is already here, and that means corporations need to adapt and make themselves more resilient from the built environment to the products they sell. I spoke with the CEO of Unilever, which makes over 400 products globally. He said the company's history in dealing with global political disruptions positions it well for climate-related supply chain disruptions. It's in our DNA to be able to deal with these type of uh, crises. What it does is it puts a premium on speed of adaptation. So I think every major business was tested by COVID where planning became less important than speed of response. And I think the same is going to be true on the challenges to our supply chain that come from climate change. Resilience, adaptability. Adaptation, resilience, and getting to net zero will cost companies large and small, like Pepsi, which pledges to be net zero by 2040. But its CEO says rather than a green premium, it will lead to green profit. I think this is a major growth opportunity for PepsiCo. If I, if I can get my consumers to prefer my brands because I am um, somehow more environmentally friendly and I can convince them that that's the way they want to live their lives and make their choices, I am, I'm going to be very successful. I think growth is going to be my, uh, my big reward to uh, shareholders for investing in Pepsi. In a speech here earlier this afternoon, former President Obama told a COP audience that more than one-fifth of the world's largest companies have set net zero emissions targets, quote, not just because it's the right thing to do for the environment, but in many cases, 
because it makes sense for their bottom line. Kelly? Absolutely, Diana. Thank you, Diana Olick. One of the sticking points in this transition to a carbon-free economy is the cost. According to a recent report by the International Energy Agency, it's expected to cost around $4 trillion a year. The Wall Street Journal says despite that huge number, financing it won't be as hard as many believe. Joining me now is Greg Ip. He's the chief economics commentator at the Wall Street Journal. Greg, to build off what Diana just said, I love this quote from Brian Moynihan. He says, if there's a revenue stream, then the funding is infinite. Yeah, I love that line, Kelly, because, you know, you and I have covered Wall Street for many years, and we know that where there's a profit, Wall Street will jump in there, and the money just comes like water, right? Uh, Let's break down that $4 trillion number that you just cited from the International Energy Agency. That's the figure they expect we'll need to be investing in sustainability by the end of this decade to achieve the net zero target. Sound like a lot of money? Well, if you actually look at it relative to GDP and you subtract what we're already spending on GDP, for the United States, it only comes to around 1% of GDP. We have increased investment by that much many times in the past. That's roughly the scale of the internet boom. That's roughly the scale of the housing boom in the 2000s. So the key here isn't finding the money. There's, there's no shortage of capital. It's there's a shortage of projects to invest that capital in. And even that's starting to change. Yes. Uh, you, uh, so, so as you, you know, you had Alan Jopay on the on just a few minutes ago. He's talked about setting an internal price at Unilever of about fifty dollars a ton. That creates a pool of capital that then uh, generates revenue streams out there in the venture capital environment to say, hey, that's a, a demand that we should try and invest in to meet. Probably it's the biggest change over the past couple of years. And I guess the the most important question I could ask you would be how much of this funding is coming from the government versus the private sector. If the incentives are now in place, can it all come from the private sector so it doesn't have to come in terms of higher spending, higher deficits, higher debt? Absolutely. In fact, all of it can come from the private sector. Now, in the case of the United States, that's easy because, for example, most of our utilities are investor-owned. When you go abroad, a lot of those investors are state-owned, and so, of course, some of that will have to come from the uh, uh, state budgets. But keep in mind, we're talking about investment in the true sense of the word. It's not a cost the way, for example, fighting a war is a cost. It's an investment in that when you put the money in, you get a return. When you invest in, for example, an electric car or renewable power plant or a power transmission line, you get a stream of revenue over the next 30 or 40 years. And what's often forgotten is that renewable energy has very low ongoing operating costs because there's no fossil fuel stock to go into it. The key is overcoming the initial very high fixed costs necessary to get the investment in the ground mm-hmm. and get the manufacturing scale economies down. And the price plunges over the past decade make that all the easier. Lower cost of capital, like you said, it can be debt finance. It's a little bit more reliable. A lot of positives yeah. uh, heading in that. I'll, you Go ahead, Greg, because you're the one who's got to yeah, go. Make- Sure. Yeah. I want to make one (laughs) final point because all today we've been talking about Tesla, haven't we? A $1.2 trillion company company that no longer relies on federal subsidies. People want to buy those cars, not because it makes them feel good in an environmental sense, but because they're incredibly high performing cars. Mm -hmm. And just in the, you know, five or six years it's taken for uh, Tesla to achieve what it's done, it has proven you can make money on an electric car and it has forced everybody else to uh, all the other car manufacturers to follow suit. It's not enough. We have so many hard to decarbonize sectors like steel and cement and aviation, where we're still on the very high cost part of the technology curve. But the fact that we're talking about Tesla the way we are today, I think, is evidence enough that if you can make that put the technology there and if you can get the incentives there, the capital will come enthusiastically to finance that transition. So well said. A banner day for that. In fact, Greg, thank you so much. We love having you. All right.
Greg Ip with the Wall Street Journal. Coming up, the rallying in AMC seems unstoppable as the Reddit crowd continues to bet on this comeback, darling. Will tonight's earnings have the apes holding on or will any of them have their diamond hands turning back to coal? We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. We've really given up our gains today. Dow was up 237. It's now up 44. The Nasdaq was briefly a goose egg, but it's up 37, and the S&P is up three right now. Here are some of the movers this hour. The infrastructure ETF, ticker PAVE, is jumping after the passage of the $1 trillion infrastructure bill this weekend. $550 billion is new spending. But anyway, some of its top holdings include Nucor, Vulcan Materials, and United Rentals. Vulcan, for instance, is up almost 5% today. Alphabet joining the $2 trillion club this morning. That's just amazing, isn't it? Let's look back here at its market cap just below that marquee level. It's the first time for Google joining Microsoft and Apple, which those two are around $2.5 trillion stocks. This is also the fifth straight day the stock is higher. It's an all-time high, of course, and it's up 70% this year. Meanwhile, Peloton continues its decline. It's the worst performer in the Nasdaq today. Look at the shares down 7.7%. They are now down 45% for the week. Peloton back around 51. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? I'm going to have to do a 45-minute hit in Hills later today just to get the stock back up. All right, folks, uh, let's tell you what the news is at this hour. Police in Missouri have arrested a man they believe shot and killed six people across two states. Perez Reed has been charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Police sources say they recovered a pistol believed to be tied to all six killings when Reed was arrested. On the news tonight, how police tracked him down and what similarities the cases share. That's tonight at 7 Eastern Time. The news with Shepard Smith. COVID infections in Germany have hit a record high on the same day that vaccinated travelers from Germany and many other nations can resume visits to the United States. German officials call it a, quote, pandemic of the unvaccinated. In France, COVID hospitalizations have hit a one-month high. And a new study shows it's the type of fat and not the amount that may be the biggest factor in increasing the risk of strokes. You guessed it, eating more animal fat is tied to higher stroke risk, while those eating more vegetable fats have a lower stroke risk. The findings have not yet been peer-reviewed. Kelly, back to you. That's a relief. I can ignore it then. (laughs) Tyler, thank you. I'll see you in about half an hour. Still ahead, PayPal has only missed on earnings once over the past 16 quarters. But with the street expecting numbers in line with guidance, will that streak be disrupted? The AMC apes are gearing up for its results, but the theater chain warned last quarter of challenges ahead. And Virgin Galactic expected to report a loss after delaying its commercial flight program a few weeks back. Shares are down 15% over the past month. Is there more pain ahead? The key metrics to watch and how to position ahead of today's results after the bell. Up next. Welcome back to the exchange, the earnings exchange, everybody. Earnings season is beginning to wind down, but some big meme stocks report after the bell. So in this edition of Earnings Exchange, we'll bring you the action, the story, and the trade on PayPal, AMC, and Virgin Galactic. Let's start with PayPal. It's down more than 25% from its 52-week high. Shares took a dive on reports it was considering buying Pinterest last month. They've since refuted that rumor. Still, the street will be listening for any insight on future plans and growth strategies. PayPal shares, get this, are negative on the year. They're underperforming rival square. It's up about 10%. Kate Rooney is here with the story. Steve Grasso, CEO of Grasso Global and a CNBC contributor, will give us the trades today. Welcome to you both. Kate, first to you. What are you watching for? So take rates are big here, but if you look at uh, 2020, Kelly, that was a massive year for PayPal. You mentioned Square as well. 
Those stocks are really seeing a bit of a hangover right now. They're both negative to start uh, or, or to year to date right now. And we are entering a period of just really tough comparisons. I've been talking to analysts this morning. They say it might be, you know, double digit growth, but it's nothing compared to what they saw in 2020. So watch the take rate. That's essentially the percentage of the transactions that PayPal gets to keep as revenue. That percentage has come down since 2019. Estimates for today around 2%. So the question for analysts, can that offset a potential slowdown in revenue? Revenue is also big. Analysts are predicting lower revenue uh, compared to those Q2 levels and a potential slowdown in e-commerce. If you look at some of the web traffic to some of um, the partners there and and, uh, just their e-commerce traffic in general, Headwinds as well from the eBay spinoff. You remember Q2, Dan Schulman talked about, you know, that really being a surprise to them and um, eBay spinning off faster than expected. So analysts are really waiting for that to be fully fleshed out. And finally, M&A. We talked about Pinterest a ton when that came out. They have said that is officially off. They're not buying Pinterest. We may get a little bit more clarity on the company's acquisition strategy. Uh, will they shop elsewhere? Social commerce has been huge. So will they still look to integrate that and maybe buy another company or build it themselves? Right. And Steve, it was a fascinating chat a couple weeks ago with an analyst who said the biggest problem for PayPal is that they are not in the physical world. He wants to see it used more at point of sale transactions. And I was thinking about this lately as more digital wallets are starting to roll out this capability that if if they don't roll that out quickly here, they could be missing the boat. So he wants them to do what he would call a boring acquisition of like a payment processor. Is there any chance that you think they would go in that direction or should? Well, I actually agree with that. And and when the Pinterest rumor came out, I thought they would have been better off doing a more traditional payment processor. But Hmm. in Kate's report, she came up with a bunch of negatives there. And if you look at the stock, your lead into it was a stock that is is known for uh, beating estimates and actually having a a, a perfect or near perfect earnings report uh, record. But when you look at the stock itself, Kelly, we're trading at roughly $229. Support in the stock has been around 223 to 225 for the entire year, up and down. But what's, what the stock has going for it is that it sold off 16% on those Pinterest rumors. So it leaves a lot of runway to move higher. So if you want to buy it, use 223 as your exit. Because if it doesn't hold 223, Kelly... It drops down to around $200, uh, give or take. Hmm. And then the next stop is 190 223 is crucial level. All right. It's a 228 right now. That still gives it a forward PE around 45. Kate, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Kate Rooney, watching PayPal's results tonight. Let's move on to AMC, which is higher by nearly 2,000% this year. It is 40% off its 52-week high, though. Unlike GameStop, AMC is going all in with its new retail trading base, with CEO Adam Aaron shouting the apes out occasionally, announcing plans to accept crypto for tickets, launching a retail popcorn business. Let's bring in Julia Borson. Julia, how much do the old-fashioned earnings numbers matter here? Well, I I can't tell you how much the old-fashioned earnings numbers will impact what happens with the stock because this is such a mean trade. But there are so many questions about the fundamentals of this company. I mean, if you look just at what's expected for third quarter results, the company is expected to report over $700 million in revenue for the fourth quarter, which is an even more important quarter in terms of the films that are going to be released. It's expected to report $1.1 billion in revenue, but it's still losing money. Estimated 53 cent per share loss, so that loss will decrease in the fourth quarter. 
quarter. But Kelly, there are these fundamental questions that we don't have answers to yet. One is whether audiences will ever come back to the theaters in the same numbers as they did before the pandemic. And also how much all of these new business models around film releases, such as simultaneous releases and a shortened release window, will fundamentally impact the movie going audience going forward. Steve, what would you say for the trade here? Yeah, so, so I think you hit it on the head. Do fundamentals matter? And, and uh, of course, they don't in a stock like this. But having said that, the fundamentals have gotten better. And, and to Julia's point, if you go back to Q1 of 2019, revenues are around $1.2 billion. And we're flirting with that area now. But it, it's, it's not about fundamentals. It's about can they keep feeding the news cycle to create fodder to keep the meme stock status going? Hmm. And that I, I, I don't believe uh, anyone is excited about a retail location that's going to be essentially a candy store. But I will tell you that the mobile delivery of it doesn't uh, doesn't bother me at all. I think you just have to give them a little smoke and mirrors. And I, and I mean that in the kindest of ways, while the fundamental balance sheet uh, starts to improve or continues to improve. And Julie, what would you add to that? I, I would just say we have to see what happens with film releases. I think that there is a sense of momentum going into the holiday season. All of the facts around vaccines and different treatments for COVID do certainly bode well for the industry. But there's also a sense that theaters are going to have to invest in really making that experience feel different than watching a movie at home, which means they're going to have to spend a lot more money to improve their actual physical theaters and all the different bells and whistles of things like alcohol and fancy food they can offer. And serving it at a time when there's a history historic labor shortage. Absolutely. A lot of challenges. Julia, thanks. Julia Borston. Finally, today, let's look at Virgin Galactic, the space tourism company poised to report only its second quarter with any revenue. Shares really came back down to earth last month after Virgin delayed the start of commercial space travel to t- late 2022. They're down by more than 17 percent year to date. Morgan Brennan joins me now. Morgan, such a busy space with so much excitement this year. Uh, let's talk about what you think is important to watch in this earnings report. Yeah, I think the big thing to watch here is actually going to be revenue. As you mentioned, this is actually going to be the second quarter potentially where you're seeing revenue growth year on year. Here's the key. After Q2 earnings, which was also in the midst of that major space flight, that test flight for Virgin Galactic, in which Sir Richard Branson, the founder of the company, was on board as well, got so much attention, triggered a $500 million share sale uh, as well. You saw ticket sales open and open at significantly higher prices. So starting at $450,000 a seat, which is about double what the first 600 people that are in the backlog right now looking to get on board Virgin Galactic space flights in the future uh, actually paid. So that is going to matter. Uh, Also, the fact that the path to profitability really hinges on commercial service starting. And as you just mentioned, that continues to be pushed back. We're now looking at Q4 of 2022 and a revenue generating flight involving the Italian Air Force that was supposed to happen last month has also been pushed to the middle of next year as well. So what does that cash burn look like in the meantime? These are going to be the key questions for the, yeah, for the no, company and the stock. You're reminding me it's a misnomer to call it the earnings report. It's a revenue report, really. At least we know that much. Right. Steve, what about you? I know this has been a ba- battleground stock for you we've talked about. Yeah, believe it or not, I'm still up over 20% in this trade. So mm-hmm. I got in at, at the uh, early onset with the story as it developed. But uh, to Morgan's point, the most, the, the most prevalent thing that investors should uh, worry about is cash burn. And Morgan cor- can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, but I have them running out of cash if all things remain equal, which is a big uh, if, uh, probably in 2023, late summer. That's what investors 
are really preoccupied with. But I think the, the company as a whole, I can say this uh, because I've been a shareholder, I've been disappointed with the communication from the company. Hmm. And I think they need to pivot now. You can't just talk about uh, these, these flights going up or whatever deposits they take because that cash doesn't go away. They can't spend that cash until they actually start uh, commercial travel. So they should start talking about hypersonic travel, New York City to the UK in 90 hmm. minutes. Just start to give a little more depth to the story. I'm still an investor, but I am tired of the lack of communication from management. Quick last word, Morgan. Is that sound about right in terms of their cash flow projections? Uh, that, that sounds about right. We're going to see what they report after the bell today. What I will say is the hypersonic travel has been the long-term bull case for the stock for quite a, a while. But a lot of that capability um, was seen and spoken about under the previous CEO, George Whitesides, who has since departed the company. Hmm. So to Grasso's point, it is something that we haven't heard about in quite a while, but has been the long-term reason to be in the stock, which, by the way, that stock chart, we're down 65 percent just since the most recent highs during the summer. It kind of looks like a bunch of launches and landings, too. <laughs> this is a landing they don't want to stick. Uh, Morgan, thanks so much. We appreciate it, Morgan, Brennan, and Steve. Great stuff today. I feel so much more informed uh, ahead of tonight. Steve Grasso with all of our trades. Well, the Glaze is coming off this sweet stock, getting a downgrade today on labor concerns and losing more than a third of its value since its IPO. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody, and check out shares of Krispy Kreme, down 3.6% today after Truist downgraded them to hold from buy and cut their price target to 15. Uh, Krispy's actually at 13.59 right now. The main driver for their cut today was labor shortages. They're saying the company may struggle to find delivery drivers and other workers that could dampen its expansion plans. Analysts say that slowdown will dampen top-line growth in the next few quarters and keep the stock's valuation in check, if not compress it further. Krispy Kreme just went public in July at $17 a share, and after a first day pop, like I said, it's down to 13. And still ahead, the U.S. borders are now reopened to foreign tourists. Does it spell trouble for timeshares? We'll discuss with the CEO of Marriott Vacations with the stock up 17 percent in the past three months right after this. Shares of Marriott Vacations, the hotel chain's timeshare business, lowered despite stronger-than-expected earnings today and October sales above 2019 levels. Still, the shares are down about 2.5%. Here to discuss whether today's reopening of U.S. borders to tourists, well, that spells trouble for the industry as the CEO of Marriott Vacations, along with our very own Seema Modi. Seema? Kelly, thank you. CEO Stephen Wise of Marriott Vacations joining us now. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. I'm here at JFK. There's a lot of excitement for foreign travelers who are coming here to the city for the first time in nearly two years. I'm wondering, your business really benefited over the course of the pandemic when more people stayed at home. But as borders reopen and more international travelers come in, how is that changing your business? Well, uh, clearly, we're, we're very excited about the uh, international travelers uh, uh, coming back to the United States. And, and uh, uh, about 15 percent of our owners are international owners. And uh, we're excited about seeing them back. We think it's going to be uh, better for our business. Even though we've uh, had a very, very good uh, 2021, we think it's even going to be better now that they're coming back. But with 85% of your customers and owners being American, I'm just curious what you're trying to do to attract these international travelers that will be making their way here over the holiday season. 
Well, um, uh, what we know about our owners is that uh, they, they, they love the product. They bought it because they want to use it time and time again. We saw it even early on in the uh, summer of 2020 when our owners started coming back to our resorts much faster than they did in the other aspects of the lodging industry. And uh, we think that uh, the more the more people that are, have the ability to travel, uh, they're going to use this pent-up demand to uh, take vacations and go uh, to a wide variety of experiences that we offer throughout our portfolio. Yeah, one of the benefits of a timeshare, Stephen, as you know, is just that consistency. You know exactly what you're getting when you're traveling. But for the younger traveler, the millennial who likes to change it up a little bit and stay at a different Airbnb every time they travel, what are you doing to, to get that traveler to book a timeshare? Uh, I'm sorry, I, I missed that question. And could you repeat it? I'm just having a little difficult time hearing you. Yeah, of course. What are you doing to get that younger traveler to book uh, a timeshare, especially these days where a lot of millennials prefer an Airbnb? Sure. Yes. Um, so, so far this year, uh, about 30% of our sales are to first-time buyers, and of that, 62% are for millennials and Gen Xers. Uh, so clearly, uh, we're seeing that uh, our product resonates very well with uh, younger uh, demographics. Uh, I think the uh, kind of traditional knock on the timeshare business is for the more mature audience. Is clearly, that's not the case. Uh, and our folks enjoy our units because they're larger. Uh, averaging over a thousand square feet each. They uh, have a living room, dining room, just as you would find in uh, some home-like facilities, plus fully amenitized resorts with lots of activities, uh, all delivered by a trusted branded experience that you would find in the hospitality industry. Stephen, it's Kelly here. I'm just curious where you're seeing the strongest parts of the country regionally. As we mentioned, you're, in some cases, bookings are above 2019 levels. And where are, do you still expect some catch-up? Yeah, um, what we saw was uh, back in the uh, uh, September, early October timeframe, there was a little bit of impact from the uh, COVID variant. Uh, that was predominantly in Florida uh, and California with a little bit of uh, back off in Hawaii. Uh, having said that, Hawaii ran 95% occupancy in the quarter. Uh, even uh, places like uh, Florida ran in the high 80s. Uh, so um, uh, generally speaking, the strength across the portfolio. I would say that some of the urban locations, uh, places like New York, are a little slower to come back. I think that's all understandable given uh, some of the exposure that, uh, that you've seen with the press and everything else about uh, some of the restrictions in some of these locations. But we're very pleased with, uh, with how our portfolio has performed. And uh, with that comes sales of $380 million in the last quarter. Yeah. And uh, as we mentioned, the stock seeing that performance as well, up 21% this year. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today with Seema Modi. Uh, our thanks to you, Seema, as well. Now, that does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.